I'll let you know where we're at in the chapter, but also thanks, Luke. And I'll let you also, you'll be able to see him also on the screen. So here we go. Lola, you told me I got to get out of here because of the Rams game, so I got to hurry it up. So we're going to move. We're going to get this done. <clears throat> I titled this message Heart Work, and if you read chapter uh, 6 of Luke, this is what you're going to see shaping. Luke is this author, and he is shaping this narrative in a way, spirit-guided, but also resource-driven by everything he's taken in and accounted for in writing this testimony of Jesus. Jesus is beginning to do something. He is beginning to turn the world upside down. He made his announcements. A couple Sundays ago, ago, we talked about that. He made his announcement that he is the Messiah, and here's the mission of the Messiah. And it turns the entire world upside down. The kingdom does not work the way that we would want the kingdom to work. It does what we wouldn't do. And so Jesus here is beginning to now, let's talk about how this kingdom can be walked out and where it begins. And so I just titled this, Heart work, and I, I really ultimately say Jesus' call in chapter 6, this is what you're seeing him do, is call for deep moral convictions with this new heart. This new heart produces deep moral convictions. It's a transformation on how we live our life, a total transformation on who we are and how we walk this out in our life. Moral development is very interesting because it hasn't really the theory or at least the study of the science of morality hasn't really begun until the 1950s. Where does it come from? Why do we make moral decisions? What is moral? What do we determine as moral? And so really if you look at it, they would say that there's a definition that probably I would say I tend to agree with, which are values determined ultimately your morals. Your values will determine your morals. And your convictions on those values will actually determine how you apply them or the application of them. How deeply you are convicted about them. And Jesus is in chapter 6 getting right to the conviction part. Right to the values part and, and, and how we can walk them out in our life. I think a lot of times that when you look at, and I've read paper after paper of how ultimately morality is developed in culture. And I could basically probably categorize it from what I understand in a few areas, which is contextually personality and I think ultimately intellectually. We would say contextually, how I was raised, what I was around, the fact that I'm in a country that has a democracy versus a different one. We can, we can have a lot of context around what shapes morality, which means it can be different for every single person based on their experience contextually. A personality, they're born with a certain trait, but personality is a certain way. They have maybe more empathy, so they act out of that empathy morally. There are intellectually, which is as we grow, we learn, we change, we can learn through just overall study, wisdom, that we can say intellectually I have come to this certain morality. The dilemma, though, that's presented is a dilemma such as this, which is, where is the standard for morality and who sets it? So Luke chapter 6 is going to get at the heart of this. How difficult, is, uh, how difficult will it be before morality fails for you? And so let me give you this example. If you, back in the day, if you're 
under 25, 30, you don't know what this thing's called. It's called a payphone. There used to be things called payphones. And you put money in, and sometimes there'd be loose change in the payphone. And then you would go, and as a kid, we'd check these, and we'd check the gumball machines, and be like, I found a quarter! I'm blessed and highly favored, whatever, you know, like you just, you, you were checking. But, but really, if you think about it, by taking the money that was in the payphone, you can go from this and go, well, that might not be wrong. It's there, and it's a blessing, and I found it as a blessing. Oh, and someone may say, that's, that's okay. But, but, but when it comes to maybe if a cashier gives me some money in return, I may say, you know, you, you accidentally gave me too much. Um, you gave me $5 more. Here's the $5. Now, there are some that would say, no, 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 no. That's like a gift. <laughs> it's a gift. God spoke through them, and then they knew I needed the money, and subconsciously they gave me the money, and, and then I, I was blessed and highly favored. And then I would say that there are some who would say, if I saw money laying around like the cash register open, it's fine for me to take it because it's their fault that they leave it open. So morally, it's okay for them to do that. They've crossed over too many standards for the payphone person, but now they're there. And then there's the person who says, just give me your money. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. It's, it's difficult when we begin to try to set our own morality. When we begin to put our convictions around things that we believe in. I remember hearing someone say that um, <clears throat> as much as anybody will demonize a thief, it depends on how desperate that they get, how valuable is the thing that they actually want to take. And then we'll see what you're made of. How much does it mean to you, what you're willing to compromise? I would say this, is that Jesus is stating in Luke chapter 6, the kingdom values and its morality, how we walk it out. The first thing we're going to see in Luke chapter 6 is ultimately an introduction to radical change. Radical change that you may not fully understand because we live now and they lived then, but we'll look into it for a second why it was such a radical change. I would say this is that kingdom morality pushes past human nature's limitation for sure. What you are capable of, kingdom morality and convictions will bring you beyond your nature's ability to follow your convictions. That's the work of Christ in you. That's the work of the Spirit in you, bringing you past what you're capable of doing. But it, it, it's possible. Luke chapter 6, it'll be up on the screen too as well. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now, love, listen to the words I've underlined. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you or, 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 or essentially, uh, uh, what, am I what is the word I'm thinking of? Um, ultimately, who are pressing you. Verse 29, and the one who strikes you on the cheek after, uh, um, after or other, uh, sorry, the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Now, when we read this, you go, okay, so i got to love my enemies. That sounds really good, right? Loving your enemies is, of course, I'm good. But what about an enemy? Think of your enemy, and then can you love them? Jesus is saying, we'll love. The kingdom is about loving those who are unlovable. Do good to those who hate you. Like, how can I do good to those who hate you? Have you seen Bob at work? How can I say you did a good job, Bob, when Bob, I just can't stand him, he tears me down. How can I actually do good to Bob? Jesus is saying, 
there is a switch that's happening. You are going to have to go beyond your limitations as a human. Bless those who curse you. How can I bless somebody who curses me? Someone is actively trying to destroy me, and how can I bless them? And then ultimately pray for those who abuse you. How can I pray for someone who's trying to harm me and has maybe harmed me or oppressed me? There's a spiritual resource and reserve that comes with every believer, and that is Christ and the Spirit. And He will empower you, give you the ability, when leaned into, to pray for even those who have tried to hurt you. Now, to you, this doesn't make 100% sense, but to this culture at this time, this is where they're going to get mad. If somebody strikes you on the cheek, or if somebody needs your tunic, your outer garment, give it to them. Now, in their day, any Roman soldier could come up and say, either carry this pack for me for a mile, and you need to do it. They could slap you or abuse you if they wanted to. There was nothing you could do. And if they wanted your jacket, it was very common. They would just say, give me that. I need that jacket. And they would take it from you. So they're probably freaking out. And Jesus is now announcement for a morality, a code, convictions, and values that seem to defy humanity, our ability. And it does. But... How would they have heard this? How do you hear this? It's easy to look at those poor Bible people back in the day and disconnect ourselves. How do you hear those words? Bless, pray for, um, love, do good to people who are not good to you. Where does our grace stop? And it helps us in one way when you realize I have limitations to my grace. But God, your limitations, there were none to your grace, to me. Help me be more like you, right? Think of someone who fits in the description of any of those words, an enemy, someone who hates you, someone who curses you, someone who abuses you. And I would love for you to do a little exercise of putting their name in those spots. God, I will love Bob. And I will try to do good to Bob. And I will bless him. Bless Bob. And I'm going to pray for Bob. That's a very small little practical way to begin to move into something you didn't think that you were capable of doing. But it's through the work of the Spirit. And it goes on to say, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Meaning be gracious and generous, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High God. Meaning you will then look like your Father. It says, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you know who He's talking about? Yes. He, he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Do you want to look like your family tree and your family line? Do you want to display the characteristics of your Father, your family? Then you, you will practice those things. This, now, this isn't all just about here about, about loving enemies. This is just an introduction Jesus will begin to do about flipping the world upside down. But it's possible to do. And he models it for us. The verse 37 goes on to say, Don't do, judge not, and you will not be judged. Now I get, there is discernment. 
and then there's judgment. Let me give you an idea what discernment looks like. Internally, you're feeling like something's wrong about this, but I want to give it every opportunity to, to evaluate it and, and to see if this is something that I'm discerning is this person's dangerous, maybe, or unhealthy. There's wisdom, there's experiences, all these other things. Yes, I totally get it, but discernment is different. This is what judgment is. This judgment is very different. Like, I don't know anything about this person, but no matter what it is, I think this thought about them, and I just think that I've come to this based on, based on past issues, past experience, or just biases that I have, and so therefore I'm judging this person. If I see them fall, I will go, wow, what a shame. You're a terrible person. That, that is not at all what it means to love your enemy or love someone else or this ungrateful mentality. That's not what that means, to love those. Judgment is something that is feels. You know it when you're doing it. And our world is full of judgment right now. Everybody judges people right now. I, you, if you go on Twitter, you're going to find a lot of judgment. Right? People need to realize it's so destructive. It's so unhealthy. It's not discernment. It's judgment. I think Jesus gives us a practical solution via a parable on how to think about judgment and to begin to work through it. And he does this right here in Luke 6. Now, he, I think, how he's going to teach this is this way. And, and I think this is probably the most, the easiest way to see it. Jesus probably, no doubt, uses a humorous example. Believe it or not, Jesus did have humor. Slightly dry, not our style, but he, this is a humorous way to look at what he's doing. And so he is saying, listen, there is this problem. And he says this, why? Why is the best question he's asking, asking us? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Now, where's David? David, where are you at? Can you come up here? This is David. He's our music director here. And he's a wonderful guy. If you haven't met him yet, Boy, you're taking your time. David, come up here really quick. I got I to gotta hurry. Now, David, David's a great guy. Now, this is literally, I think, what Jesus probably did in his teaching example on this. He probably did this. Now, it'd be like me going, David, David. Now, you're a prideful guy. I've seen the pride. I've watched you up here drumming, David. You're going crazy. You're barking orders at the band, right, band? Yep. You're telling everybody, and, and you really look kind of kind of arrogant as you're drumming away up there. But I, David, have accomplished something great. My wife tells me all the time how humble I am, David. And David, I think that you need me to mentor you, David, so we can get this speck out of your eye. Because David, you look very, very arrogant. But I don't know what it is. It comes easy to me. I'm not trying to humble brag, but I think that God has blessed me with humility, David. And I would say, if, I, if anyone has overcome pride and arrogance, it is me, David. Can I mentor you? No, you're supposed to say no. So, but this is what I think Jesus is doing. I think he's teaching this example, and I think it's this ridiculous where he's saying, listen, thank you, David. Why? Do you? And, and David is a very humble guy, I will say that. Why is it, Jesus says, that you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own house? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck, David, out of your eye 
when you yourself do not see the very own log in your eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then, uh, he's laying it out very clearly. You will see clearly and take out the speck in your brother's eye. Do not try to go and take the speck out of your brother's eye when you yourself can barely get through the door because of the log in your eye. This is, Jesus is making a very simple, clear analogy. Do not judge. First, work on yourself. First, do that before you say, let me remove that for you. It's hypocrisy. But the world works that way. So much so. I would say it's a projection problem. Projection is, I've got these issues myself, but to... But, but to avoid how I feel about these things and to avoid any accountability, I need to project my feelings on you and tell you how bad you are, actually. This is a huge problem. And Christianity is not immune from it. Instead of looking inwardly first, we look at the other person. I would say, in modern day terms, this is what would be called canceling something. It's so interesting to watch when people go and cancel somebody, then you find out they themselves are canceled for the same thing. It's like, wow. It's dangerous. Jesus knows it. And it doesn't belong within the morality of the kingdom. It does not work that way. A false humility or a false sense that I have it together, let me work on you. And Jesus is like, wow, look at you. Work on that first. And I think, unfortunately, Christians, sadly, have been the very first to lead the charge historically on canceling someone. When a believer falls, it, 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 sadly, and I'm not, I, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not, I don't like talking about my own people this way or myself because I've done this where when someone falls, the judgment, the fangs that come out, the, 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 the abuse that people will take based, based from Christians is, is, is not Christ-like whatsoever, where we don't think to help, we just think to shame them and judge them. That is not what Jesus is saying to do here. I think he's talking about a radical morality, something that goes beyond our own feelings and ability. It's a morality that sometimes defies logic. It's a deep conviction. It cannot be faked. It cannot be manufactured. It has to come from within. Any part of the morality of the kingdom has to manifest from within. You cannot white-knuckle it. Jesus is pointing out that it's beyond your ability to control. It has to be authentic. And I would say this, it's an outgrowth of an inward work of the heart. Now let's talk about the second part. We're going to move so fast. Manifestations of the heart is my second point. And when Jesus starts to talk about this, so he talks about these two examples, but then really what he's going to give you is the answer to be able to do these things? What's the true answer? Where's the source of it? And I would say this, true, true morality bears the fruit of its rooted tree. True morality does. Because we can do, like I do good things and I try to do the right thing. The Bible says to do this. But true morality is when the winds come, the storms come, the hard times come, does the morality remain? Is it sustainable? Is it continuously producing fruit? Luke uh, 6.43. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs do not gather, uh, are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush, meaning this, that everyone then would know, like, of course that tree doesn't bear that fruit. But if you don't know, someone can fool you. They can go, hey, listen, this is a banana tree. And if I can convince you that this is a banana tree, you would go, Ryan, stop. It doesn't, banana, that's dumb. And I would say, no, 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 look, it's a banana tree. It produces them, it comes up through the top, and they rest on the top like that. It's a miracle. I can only sustain this for so long until you realize that this fruit does not match up with that tree. But I can try to fool you. Right? We can do it with different fruits. And we can be like, no, 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 look what this produced. And you might go, wow. But if you know better, like these people knew better about those two examples, they'd say, that does not match up. That cannot produce this. And Jesus is talking about this. And when this isn't in line with this, it's not kingdom morality. It will not be sustainable. It's just a good idea. It has to come from a source that produces it continuously. I, I mean, I thought I would just even go more ridiculous. I could probably sell somebody that this donut is produced. This great fruit of Soundhouse is produced by this tree. But listen, most people go, there's no way possible. Maybe somebody would go, wow. At the end of the day... You can try. You can try to put on certain, display certain fruits. But it, it, it may not be sustainable. It may be a good idea. Jesus is cutting right to the heart on this one. And he's saying, listen, a, true, a, tr a fruit is known by its tree. Is your tree rooted? And is it the proper tree to produce this fruit? Verse 45, a good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now Jesus introduces these two radical ideas of morality. And he will introduce many more. But then he says there's only one way it can sustain itself is the tree. The foundation. The roots. The heart is so important. Not what you do, it's the heart that's producing it. God isn't going like, oh, good job. That was a really neat thing to do. I, that makes you a good person. God is going, let me see your heart. And I'll tell you what kind of fruit that is. And so the heart matters. When someone says, bless your heart, you know what that means in the South? That means you're an idiot. Bless your heart. Oh, Right? But... But, but the funny thing is, is like I've heard people say things even like this. So they're, they're really, they've done really bad things, and, and they continually do really bad things, but they, they have a good heart. And I'm like, really? They don't match up. Jesus is cutting right at this, and I want to read two passages, and we'll close. Um, three passages. God is more interested in your heart, not the outward fruit that you can display 
on a heart that doesn't match up with the kingdom. And you can maybe think you're fooling God, but you're not fooling God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, this is a heart issue, then I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and, uh, and, and I can perceive all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I have not love, your heart, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned. I have nothing. I've gained nothing. I think God cares a lot about the heart. I think he cares a lot about where the fruit's coming from. Not trying to fake fruit, but real fruit. So Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into something radical, but it will take a radical transformation of the heart to produce this fruit for the kingdom's work. David has a, a song he wrote about from the inside out type of heart song. And it's in Psalms 56, 6. Behold, you delight in truth. He's speaking about the nature of God and what he cares about. You delight in the truth, uh, uh, in the inward being, meaning that you care about the truth of what's inside. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, these words are very important. And this is a really good prayer. Purge me with hysop. Uh, uh, which is a, a, a cleansing balm. And I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be um, whiter than snow. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear you, God. And let the bones oof that you have broken. Hide. Um, let me re broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew the right spirit within me. Why did God love David? David understood it's this heart. God cares a lot about the heart. Why should we care about morality? Why should, why should we desire to display good fruit? One, if you want to go just very, very um, at the end of your life, you can start there. Sometimes you can go all the way there. And I think about these things myself. Like, I'm going to stand before God one day, and He's going to know the fruit I'm displaying and the heart of which is behind it. And He will know. And am I going to be comfortable with God when He's going, let's talk about the fruit. And I'm like, uh, a divine accountability. But also, why would you want to, to, to really pursue morality, uh, biblical morality and kingdom morality? Is I would say it, you're in cooperation with the Spirit's work of sanctification in you to produce this fruit. It's a beautiful process that the Spirit's work with inside of you. And the other one is so you know to inspect fruit of others. If you're producing good fruit, no one will ever come up to you and try to sell you an orange from the cactus tree and you go, Oh, ah, yeah, good. You know fruit. You know which it comes from, and you can see the heart. I'll close with this last passage Jesus says, and it's, it closes out the, the chapter 6 in Luke, and it's probably the very best way to close after the heart talk. And Jesus says, I think ultimately in this passage, is Christ-likeness requires a strength and a foundation um, that uh, will be in your heart, a foundation within your heart to sustain itself and to actually display the fruit 
that changes lives and changes your life, that reflects Christ through. What is your foundation for your morality and your convictions and your values? Is it societal norms? You might want to rethink it. They change. Is it your parents' convictions? Not quite your own values? You might want to evaluate that. Is it the limits of the law? Well, the law says I can do this, so my morality goes as far as the law says something's illegal. Is it that? Is it just when I'm only in public view only? Where are the, what's the foundation of your convictions? What's the values that you have? Are they? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And, uh, and uh, not do what I tell you. So you're saying, God, we serve you. But he's like, but why are you doing what I'm saying? Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid foundations on the rock. And when a flood rose and the streams broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it was built well. But the one who hears the word and does not do them is like a man who is built on a house uh, on the ground without a foundation. When the storm or the streams broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. I think this is a very good way that Jesus is showing that how strong are your convictions. Because when the storms come, which they will. And the temptations come, which they always do. How strong are your convictions? What are they rooted in? And what's the tree that's bearing the fruit? And how rooted are you? Kingdom morality, I think, begins with the foundation of a heart change. And it will be from the heart of which it's produced. These are powerful words Jesus is speaking. Powerful words to us today, especially when morality is up for discussion. But Jesus is laying a foundation for us that as believers, as you've changed your heart and become alive in Christ, that your foundation is capable and able to produce fruit that is spirit-produced, spirit-led, that is boggles minds, that an enemy can feel love from you, that someone who has been unkind to you will feel goodness from you. It flows. And I think that that is what Jesus was leading and the movement he was leading. And at the end of the day, I pray that not one Christian, when the storms come and the floods come, that there's a fall and a great fall because the foundations were not there. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for everything that you have done in our life. Thank you for even today as we celebrated your work within this church. And what you're doing and what you plan on doing and, and through all of us. And God, God I pray that even as we read Luke 6, the words of Jesus, this great sermon he's delivering. That God, we hear his words about a heart and fruit. And out of that, a good heart, rooted, bears good fruit. And God, that we're people who don't just fake the fruit. 
And we don't just hide the heart. We're like David. God, expose it. God, show me. God, create it new. God, help me. Help me be more like you. I, 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 my heart is transformed. God, I want to be after you with your heart. And God, I just pray that every person here, that we do not labor in vain. We don't waste our time on this earth pretending to be good instead of just working on and focusing on our foundation and strengthening ourselves in your word, in your truth, and by your spirit. And then the fruit then will begin to display God. And I just pray for our church to experience that over and over and over. And for the world around them, the enemies might come to you because they felt love impossible. But not with you, God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?